Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. The words to which I should like to draw our attention to this morning can be found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, this morning... We will begin reading in verse 32. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you this morning, you can find our text on page 912, 912 in the Pew Bible. And we are making our way through the book of Acts. We continue our study and our series in the book of Acts. We're thinking about the continuing acts of the risen Lord. It's one thing that we see as we go through this book. Jesus is no longer on earth. He's ascended into heaven, but guess what? He's still there. He's still active. He's still doing things. He's still building His church. And I believe as we look at how Jesus Christ was active, as He was doing things then, that we should take encouragement that He can and will be doing things among us today. This week, this year, do you long for that? Do you want to see Jesus Christ work among us? Do you pray for that? Do you plead to God that you would see our risen Lord act in our midst, on our behalf, in a mighty and undeniable way? Let's stand together this morning as we read God's Word together out of respect, honor, reverence for God's Word. Acts 4.32 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the one who walks among the seven lampstands who walks among this church, your lampstand. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing 
before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Those few lines are the way that Charles Dickens opens his book, A Tale of Two Cities. It's interesting how those few lines might fit so well with what we have read today. Although our events aren't the tale of two cities, but a tale of two hearts. One heart we would long to look at in its beauty and splendor. A heart that we would even ourselves long for. The other heart, though, we might want to ignore, pretend like it is not there. Heart that one even might despise. One heart filled with so much hope. One heart filled with so much despair. I grew up in my childhood listening to audio cassette tapes. Do you remember those audio cassette tapes? Some of you say, well, yeah, I remember even 8-track. But when I was growing up, I listened to audio cassette tapes. And there was one thing that always annoyed me about audio cassette tapes. If there was a song on my cassette tape that I didn't want to listen to, I would have to fast forward. And you would always have to guess. Fast forward and try to guess where the song ended. Sometimes maybe you weren't quite there yet, so you had to go a little bit more. (laughs) Sometimes you went too far and you had to go back, press the rewind button. Then came the advent of the CD. It was revolutionary in my life. I mean, here it is now. When you want to skip a song, all you have to do is press a button one time and it skips it perfectly. (laughs) Never have to guess. Just simply press one little button, and you would skip over, miss exactly what you want to miss. We might want to press the skip button this morning over this second heart. And the reason why is because it's a difficult passage. It's an uncomfortable passage. It may be one of the most shocking, horrifying, and terrifying passages in all of the New Testament, but it shines a light this morning on what the prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17.9. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is not a statement about some people's hearts. It's not a statement for the really bad people. It's a statement upon all of our hearts and the desperate predicament that all of our hearts either are in or were in at one time. Hearts that are deceitful are both hearts that are deceived and hearts that will deceive. Deceptive hearts are dangerous hearts. Deceptive hearts cause problems, cause cause injury, even bring death. 
one problem the church faces, one problem that we face is the problem of deceptive hearts. What is it that deceptive hearts do? Deceptive hearts damage church unity. Our God desires true unity in His church. Deceptive hearts do not bring that kind of true unity. And it is a lesson that is very shocking to us when we read this passage. But we have to remember something this morning. That this passage that we've just read is a true event. It's not a fairy tale. It hasn't been made up. This is the author, Luke, who was a physician trying to give an orderly account of what really happened. This is not a nice little story with some good morals. No, this really happened. It happened to real people, and it's meant to wake us up this morning to some great important truths. We cannot press the skip button. So what does this text this morning teach us? Number one, be encouraged to promote unity in the church through sacrifice. Be encouraged to promote unity in the church through sacrifice. Now, you may not like that whole sentence. You may like part of it. (laughs) Be encouraged to promote unity in the church. Yes, I like that. Let's promote unity in the church. What happens though when we add those last few words? Through sacrifice. Uh, really? Do I have to give something? <laughs> Maybe you're a person who likes to see what goes on behind the scenes. How do things work? How do things operate? You want to know more about the finished product, all the steps that were taken, everything that, that happened to get to that finished product, that finished point how someone was able to produce something of such high quality. Our verses this morning give us a behind-the-scenes look into the church. They help us look at the early church, what is going on from the very beginning. We often see the early church on mission. They're going out. They're proclaiming the gospel. People are being saved. But what is going on in the church was important to the church from the very beginning. God cares about how we live as His church. God cares about how we build relationships with each other. God cares about how we love each other. And if God cares about these things, shouldn't we care about these things? The first verse in our text this morning, verse 32, serves as the controlling verse for what flows in our text. Look at that verse again. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. We cannot miss from the very beginning there was unity in the church. 
These are the people, the full number who have been marked out as those who believe. We are talking about thousands and thousands of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ over a short period of time. We have seen people come from different backgrounds, different languages, even people from differing locales, but they were of one heart and soul. There was something that had brought them together. There was something that bound them together. There was something they share in common, and it was so great that even though not everyone looked the same or had the same gift or even had the same understanding, they were unified. Why could such a people be unified? What would it be that would unify people who, if truth be told, left to themselves, probably wouldn't unify. They wouldn't get together. They probably wouldn't have such a close bond and fellowship. What was it that caused them to be of one heart and of one mind? It was this. They had Jesus Christ in common. They had the same Savior and Lord. They had Christ in common and they had relinquished their lives to Him. They were no longer living for themselves, but they were living for the one who died for them. They had died and their lives were now hidden in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, You are all one in Christ. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Here it is that we come to understand that if we truly belong to Christ then we belong to one another. It's impossible, my friend, to say that you belong to Christ and avoid His people. The church is not a meeting you attend, but a body that you belong to. Christ is the head of His church, and it is He that has brought us together and unified us. Woe to us if we would ever try to separate Christ from his people. And woe to us if we should ever say that we are Christians but avoid and run away and keep ourselves from loving our fellow believers in the church. That is what was astounding. The great unity of the church, the strong bond, the sharing of Jesus Christ. It was because they had been given this great salvation. It was because of God's great generosity. It was because of God's great grace that then in this bond of faith, they were able to be generous towards one another. So much so that no one said that anything of the things that he had belonged to himself. They had everything in common. They were sharing believers, and they shared willingly. They wanted to. The apostles were not walking around like sometimes I do with my children, saying, now make sure you share. No, they wanted to give to each other. They didn't 
hold on so tightly to their possessions and their belongings and their time and their money, but they gave freely, willingly, and generously to one another. All of this unity, all of this generosity, this sharing and commonality centered around the gospel. Here we see in the church the apostles are doing what? With great power, they're bearing testimony, they're giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They continue to preach Christ with great power and this is the very bedrock of the unity of the church. It was this gospel the message of the crucified and resurrected Lord that became the centerpiece of their lives. It was the gospel that brought them together and it was the gospel that kept them together. It was the evidence that great grace was upon them. The great grace upon them did not mean that somehow they had deserved what they had received from God. They had received everything that they had from God. Not just salvation, but they had received material things, possession, money. They realized that those things were God's grace upon their lives. The great grace of God was upon them. And by realizing and understanding the greatness of God's grace and all that God had done for them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ meant that they could no longer just look out for number one. They could not say and would not say, I am only responsible for myself. I will take care of myself. You take care of yourself. They had a desire to make sure that everyone in their fellowship, in their church, was taken care of. God's great grace had come upon them when they were a needy people. They were spiritually poor and bankrupt, having no hope to pay the debt that they owed themselves. But God lifted them up out of the dust, paid the debt that they could never have paid, brought them into his family, lavished upon them an eternal inheritance. And after God had done that for them, there was no way that they were going to let anybody be in need in the church. They were going to care for them with the means that God had given them, even if that meant doing what? Selling their houses or lands. Do you realize the sacrifice that that would have been? That would have been like your life savings. That would have been your security How does Christ have to change someone so much that they would say, my security is not in my bank account. My security is not in my houses. It's not in my land. It's not what I'm going to fall back on materially if something goes wrong. My security is grounded in Jesus Christ. And because my security is grounded in him, that all of those other things can never bring the security that he brings. And so I willingly give those things to him and his church. What kind of transformation? In America, in our society, if someone said that, what would people say about us? They're crazy. 
But is that the kind of grace that you know? Is that the kind of great grace that you have experienced? Some of the people that we see here in the church had means. They had property, they had money, they were able to sell those things, bring the proceeds, and lay them at the apostles' feet. Now, I do not think that it means this morning that we must go out and we must sell all of our houses. I don't think that the point here is that we should get rid of all of our private property. It is not saying to us this morning that you must sell your houses and your lands. But it is saying you might. And not just sell them, but give the proceeds to the church. This is what the people were doing. They were selling these things and they were giving the proceeds to the church. And what were they doing when they had those proceeds that they, that they received from selling their houses or lands? They took those proceeds and they laid them at the apostles' feet. Why did they do that? There's a sign there of submission. Submitting to the leadership of the apostles that Jesus himself had put in place. It was a demonstration of humility. A demonstration of trust. Trusting that this money would be used well. That they would be good stewards with the money that was given. And that it would be distributed appropriately to the people as they had need. Now, we might be tempted to think, did this really happen? I mean, this is nice in theory, Pastor, but this isn't really practical, is it? No one in their right mind would do this. Do people really make this kind of sacrifice? And so we're given an example of someone who really did this. His name was Joseph. Joseph was a man, and what do we know about him? Well, it says here that his name was uh, Joseph. He was a Levite. He was a native from the island of Cyprus. So he was a, a Jew. And in fact, he becomes a regular person in the book of Acts. He's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts, and here is the first time that he is mentioned. And he is mentioned here to be an encouragement to the church. And he's mentioned to be an encouragement to us this morning. He had some means and he had a field. And he sells that piece of land. He takes the money and he had purchased from the land and he laid it at the apostles' feet. It was a demonstration of great generosity it was a demonstration of great sacrifice. It was a demonstration of great love. Not just love for his Lord, but love for the people of God. What did such an action do for the church? It was not an ordinary action. It was an exceptional action taken. And it promoted unity within the church through this man's sacrifice. 
This is why the apostles give Joseph a nickname, don't they? What's his nickname there? Barnabas. What does Barnabas mean? Son of encouragement. What Joseph had done willingly at great cost, with great sacrifice, with great generosity, became the badge that he wore. The people were so encouraged. The people were so built up towards greater unity. The people were so bonded through this action that he became known as the encourager. His encouragement made people closer. It brought them together. It built them up in the faith. So let me ask us this this morning. Are we promoting greater unity in our church through sacrifice? What is the badge that you are wearing? Would it be a badge like the badge Barnabas wore? Is this the kind of unity you long to see strengthened in this church? Are you generous? But before we get too far ahead of ourselves here this morning, I want us to look at number two, a warning. Number two this morning. Be warned of the danger of disunity in the church through deception. Be warned of the danger of disunity in the church through deception. In the first five verses that we looked at here in the book of Acts, the end of chapter 4, this has been a, a picture of the ideal church, hasn't it? I mean, look at this church. They have it all together, don't they? Who wouldn't want to go to this church? This church looks amazing. <laughs> and then we get to chapter 5. It reminds me of a story about a British pastor, preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And at one time in his pastorate, he had a couple come to him and say to him, Pastor, we're going to leave your church, we're going to leave this congregation because we're going to go out and we're going to look for the perfect church. And Spurgeon, with his quick and cutting wit, said to them, well, when you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. His point should be well taken by us today. There is no perfect church, especially if we've joined it. But even at the very beginning of the church, even at the very conception of the church, we see clearly that it is not a perfect church. They had problems, even people with heart problems. And here is a couple who is not perfect. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira, whose actions are put in contrast to Barnabas. If we see a great example of sacrifice and faith in the life of Barnabas, we definitely do not see that in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And so their actions become a warning to us. 
If Barnabas was unifying the church, Ananias and Sapphira were separating the church. If Barnabas was encouraging the church, Ananias and Sapphira Sapphira would discourage the church. If Barnabas was telling the truth through his actions, Ananias and Sapphira were lying. Here's a question that we must face at the very beginning this morning because it's a common question, a question you might have, a question that I had as I studied this. The question is this. Were Ananias and Sapphira condemned to hell? Did God damn them for this action that they did? Or, to put it another way, were Ananias and Sapphira truly saved? Were they believers? We've already read the story. You know that they die. And so, as I studied this and as I looked at these verses... I came to this conclusion with certainty this week, and the certainty that I came to is this. I don't know. I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were saved. I don't know if they went to hell. And you might object this morning to that answer, me saying that I don't know. You might say, well, pastor, isn't it obvious Isn't it obvious that these people were damned to hell? Isn't it obvious that they were false Christians? You might say, look at what Peter says to Ananias. Satan has filled your heart, Ananias. Ananias." There's all the evidence you need, right? That these people were not Christians. Let me remind you of the mouth that that came out of, Peter's mouth who a short time earlier had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Peter came to Christ and he was rebuking Jesus Christ. Jesus, you will never go to the cross. You will never be crucified. You will never suffer and die. And you know what Jesus turned around and said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your thoughts on God, but on man. Was Peter a Christian? Was Peter at that time being influenced by Satan? What about the fact that Ananias and Sapphira died? Doesn't that show us that they must have been condemned by God? Well, let me remind you something also that Paul says to the church in Corinth, in Corinthians eleven twenty-nine through 30. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, the way that we participate in the Lord's Supper, and he says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There were some in the church who didn't take the Lord's Supper the way that it was supposed to be taken and the result was they died. Does this mean that they were not Christians? I do not necessarily think so. It shows us how important it is to take the Lord's Supper properly. So before we are quick to judge and say that Ananias and Sapphira went straight to hell, I think we need to be careful. But with that said, 
we also need to understand this important truth. They sinned an egregious sin against God. And their lives ended as a result of this sin. Their lives act as, an, as a warning for the church. <laughs> beware of sin generally, yes, but beware of this sin in particular. So let's look at the sin this morning. Ananias and Sapphira also have a piece of property. And they sell that property. And then it says this, with his wife's knowledge. So that tells me something. From the very beginning, they were in on it together. They were united in sin rather than caring for the unity of the church. And so they keep back some of the proceeds of this purchase and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's an interesting, this action where it says that Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds because it reminds us of another story thousand years earlier in the Old Testament. Another man who kept back some things for himself. Do you remember that man? Joshua was leading Israel into the promised land. And their first battle is the battle of Jericho. And God tells them, everything there that you would take for spoil is to be dedicated to the Lord. But there's one man, a man named Achan. And what does Achan do? He keeps back. Some things for himself, some gold, some silver for himself. And what happens to Achan as a result? He's stoned, he's killed. Ananias and Sapphira have done something similar. They've kept back some for themselves. They, they take the leftovers, if you will, to the church. And I'm fascinated by what it says. Immediately after this action of laying the money at the apostles' feet... Peter speaks up. Now here is this direct confrontation to Ananias. And Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Can you imagine how taken back Ananias would be? How do you know what I've done? Yet here it is. Peter speaks perfectly into Ananias' life. How terrifying. How terrifying if there was someone who could stand before you and who could look into your heart and who could call you out on your sin. Who could see the darkness and who could expose it. Here it is that we see this influence of Satan over Ananias' heart. And Ananias could not say, as some people might try to say today, well, it was the devil. The devil made me do it. It was not. I had no choice because of the control of Satan over my life. There could be no excuse like that because Satan cannot make us sin. Satan can tempt us. He can tempt our flesh, he can tempt our desires, and then we sin, but he cannot make us sin, and we cannot give Satan more credit or give him more power than he really has. Now, he is powerful, but Satan is a created being. 
He does not know everything. He does not have power over everything. He cannot be everywhere at all times. He has others who work with him, his demons, who are also trying to influence and tempt. But we can never use the excuse that Satan or his demons made me do it. There was an influence, however, a temptation that appealed to Ananias' flesh, that appealed to the sin in his heart. And instead of being one who was filled with the Holy Spirit, he lied to the Holy Spirit. Here it is we see the struggle in the church, the struggle of Satan who is attempting to destroy the church, who is against the church, who is raging against the gospel and the unity that it brings. He'd already tried to gobble up the Christ, the Messiah, and he failed at that. And now he's trying to do whatever he can to destroy the body of Christ, the church, beginning to sow seeds of discord in the church. And now we're getting very close to the actual sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed. And Peter began to ask Ananias some questions. While the land was yours and remained unsold, didn't you have it at your disposal? To say this, Ananias, you didn't have to sell your land. Your land was yours. You could have kept your land and that would not have been sinning against God. The next question, and after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? The money that you had received from that land, was it not at your disposal? Couldn't you do with that money what you wanted to do with that money? Yes. You could have done with that money whatever you, did you have to bring it to the church? You didn't have to bring it to the church. And I think it's here that we we see the sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed. They had brought forward only part of the proceeds of the sale of the land. But they said, this is everything. (laughs) They said, this is it all. This is the amount of money that we sold our land for. They didn't say, this is just part of the proceeds that we're bringing. They said, this is everything that we're bringing. They had pretended to bring the whole sum of what they sold for the land, but in actuality, they kept back some of the sum for themselves. The question is, why would they do such a thing? Why would you keep back some of the money for yourselves, but tell the church that you are bringing everything? There is a sense here of greed. We want to hold on to what we want to hold on to. Their possession held a particular place in their hearts and they did not want to let go of it. But I think even more dangerous for Ananias and Sapphira is that they wanted to look spiritual. They wanted to appear godly. They wanted people to be impressed by what they had done. They wanted people to think highly of them, to say, look at everything that Ananias and Sapphira have done. Haven't they given so much? Haven't they sacrificed so much? Aren't they generous? Don't they look good? Maybe we should give them a nickname just like we gave Barnabas a nickname. They had thought that they were only deceiving the church to appear godly. 
They thought that they were only deceiving the people, but it turned out to be much, much worse. They had lied to God. Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And here we see a close connection between our understanding of the Holy Spirit and of God, because earlier he had said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and now he says, you have lied to God. And so we get this understanding that the Holy Spirit is God. And what's interesting is I hear these words, you have lied to God. Whose steps is Ananias following? Whose character is he following? Satan is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning, but God is the God of truth. God is the God who cannot lie. He is the God who searches the heart who knows the thoughts, who tests the minds to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God always knows your heart. He always knows your motive. You cannot, will not escape the penetrating gaze of God which exposes the truth. Ananias heard those words, you've lied to God, and there's a sense of irony there because can you really lie to God? You can attempt to lie to God. You can try to lie to God. But God knows. Ananias Ananias had believed the same thing that Eve had heard in the garden. Is God really good? Can you really trust Him? Will He really take care of you? No, He's holding something back. He can't be trusted, so hold something back for yourself. They believe the same lie. And when Ananias heard those words, He had lied to God. He breathed his last. He died right there and then. And young men wrapped him up. It's a sense of they packed him up. They carried him out. And they buried him. Those were the very last words that Ananias heard. You've lied to God. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't know what's just happened to her husband. But Peter again confronts her. Did did you sell the piece of land for so much? She says, yes, that's the price that we've sold it for. It confirmed that it wasn't just Ananias' sin, but that, that it was Sapphira's sin as well. Sapphira, it was the time to come clean. It was the time to tell the truth. But what did she do? She lied. And I noticed something about their lives. Sin always makes life more complicated. Sin always makes life more difficult. We never believe that in the moment, do we? We always think when we sin, this is going to make my life so much better. Unity in the church was so simple 
So simple. They had believed the gospel. They had been changed by the gospel. They were being influenced by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit. Unity was pouring forth from their love for one another and their generosity towards one another. And Ananias and Sapphira had complicated it. They had made a mess of it because of their sin. Peter accuses Sapphira of having put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. And I think that there's a line here that we could draw in the Bible. You have people in the wilderness, Israelites, who are putting the Lord to the test. Later you have Satan putting Jesus Christ to test in the wilderness. Now here, Ananias and Sapphira putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test and asking the question, is the Lord really among us or not? And I think they received their answer right then and right there. Because Sapphira falls down at Peter's feet and breathes her last breath and dies. The same men who buried her husband bury her as well. She, She shares the same result with her husband. Behind these two deaths is the understanding that this is God's divine judgment falling upon these two people. Does that make you cringe? It is this truth that in our heart of hearts is sometimes difficult for us to accept. Sometimes when people read, sto- read events, read stories like this in God's Word, they say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe in a God who would ever do that. What do you say when someone says that? I don't believe in a God who would do that. Then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. The events of this passage confront us with the very character of God himself this morning. Who is God? Who is a God who would do something like this? God is a holy God, absolutely holy. He is infinitely righteous, and he is pure moral perfection. The problem we face is that we can lose sight of His holiness. We can downplay His holiness. We can forget what it means for our Lord to be a holy, holy, holy God. And in the light of His holiness as the Creator God, it gives us a picture of our detestable and gross sin. Our sin isn't some little mistake. It's not just a little slip up. Sin is cosmic treason against an infinitely holy God. Sin is an attempt for us to remove God from His throne and set ourselves there instead. Sin is completely rebellious against God's holiness. And we would have the nerve to say, Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they have done nothing to deserve death. I mean, it's not like they've killed someone. It's not like they've committed some really bad sin, have they? 
When you understand the weight of the holiness of God, when you understand the vileness of your sin, the horror then for us today is not that God's divine judgment killed Ananias and Sapphira. The horror for us should be that we are still alive. The reality is, God would be completely just for executing us because of one single solitary sin that we would commit against Him. People do not usually instantly die for their sin, and that is nothing other than the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that you and I are still alive today. It's only by the grace of God that I'm breathing the breaths that I breathe today. But is what, a, what is amazing is that this God, in his grace and in his mercy, sent his only son, born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life, who died death in our place, who was executed on a cross of wood, bearing our sin and our shame, receiving the punishment for our sins, receiving the full brunt of God's wrath for us, shedding his own blood so that we might who put our full faith and trust in him and in his work accomplished there on the cross, that we might find free forgiveness from our sin and have access to this holy God and actually be adopted into his family and be called his sons and daughters. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, however, did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. God vindicated him to show that his work of atonement was completely sufficient to take away our sins. He is the sacrifice who was the perfect sacrifice. And there is no other sacrifice now that we need to take away our sin and to give us the gift of eternal life. What grace, what grace, what great grace in the face of what we fairly, justly deserved because of our sin. What, what cost was paid there on the cross for our sin? To minimize and downplay sin is to minimize and downplay the cross it strips the meaning and the necessity of the sacrifice of a crucified Savior. If our sin isn't really that bad, then Christ died for no purpose. If sin isn't that bad, then it was tragic that Christ should suffer and die. But if our sin was great, which it was, if our shame was real, if our guilt was more than a feeling but was an actual verdict upon us by God, then the cross shines through as the most glorious, loving, merciful, grace-filled thing that our Savior could do for us. We see the danger this morning if we think it's just enough for us to look godly. No, God desires us actually to be godly. 
He calls us to live lives that are distinct from the world. He calls us to live lives of holiness. You might be able to lie to man, but there is no way that you will get it by God. With God's holiness in view, with our sinfulness in view, we see here how the people respond to these actions. They are filled with great fear. We've moved from the apostles proclaiming the gospel with great power. We've moved from the people being filled with great grace, and now we see them filled with great fear in verses 6 and 11 of chapter 5. Here is this fear that comes upon the whole church. In fact, this is the first time we see the word church used in the book of Acts. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church, the whole assembly of people, the whole congregation. It wasn't just pockets of people who experienced this fear. It was everybody. God's message was loud and clear. He is holy. He is the true God who will not tolerate the attempt to lie to Him. He desires unity in His church and will remove those who threaten that unity. And the people's response is a right response. There is proper fear of God that we are to have. The book of Proverbs talks about this kind of fear. It calls it the fear of the Lord. It is a fear that is synonymous with reverential fear, standing in complete awe of God's greatness and holiness. This is the God who created you. This is the God who gives you life and breath. This is the God who holds your very fragile life in His hand. His power and His might are so great that they are properly to be feared. And a proper, healthy fear leads to lives that are wise and obedient. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to live a skillful life? It starts with fearing the Lord. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17 says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct your, yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That is what Ananias and Sapphira needed applied to their lives. They needed the gospel to free them, to release them from what had a hold upon their lives. They needed to be released from the the grip that their possessions had upon them. They needed to be released from the hypocrisy. They needed to be released from living a lie and attempting to deceive God. They needed to be released from the sin that was blinding them. They needed the gospel to open their eyes to the holiness of God, to the great sacrifice of Christ on their behalf, and to the grace that flowed through the gospel and would flood into their lives with grace and mercy. Is this the gospel that you see this morning? Is this the gospel that you are applying to your lives? Is this the gospel that you have applied to your life and continue to apply to your life each and every single day? And then, and then we would see 
that our lives, which are meant to be lived to the fullest, only are lived to the fullest when they are lived for the glory of God himself. Amen. Pray with me this morning. We stand in your holiness today, O oh God. And it is a fearful thing to know our lives, any of our lives, are held in your hands. Let our lives be lives that are filled with the truth. That our lives are those lives that are striving for godliness. And forgive us of the times when we would want to appear godly. But Lord, help us to be those who are applying the gospel to our lives day by day week by week, year by year, so that we might grow in generosity and in unity. Lord, if there is someone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ, we pray that today might be that day where they would see their sin in light of your holiness They would see that it's only because of your grace that they're able to be alive today. And that they would hear you call. And that they would hear that call through the gospel. They would say there's only one person who can deal with that sin. And that's Jesus Christ. There's only one person who can take it away. And there's only one person who can grant forgiveness and that this morning they would repent of their sin. They would say, I no longer want to live that way. I'm giving that up. I'm having a change of my mind. I'm turning from my sin and now I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to put my full faith and full reliance in my Savior Jesus Christ. And that they would then receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, we pray this morning that we might be, might be those who have a proper fear of the Lord and so live wise, skillful lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.